0: You are now entering the Bolson. Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive Magic the Gathering podcast for The Average Spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DuBose, and the reigning Magic World Champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. Unfortunately, this week, Nathan is under the weather, but we do have a very special guest in his seat. He cruised to the top eight of DreamHack Dallas with an undefeated record in the Swiss, with a dinosaur
1: hippo at his side. It's Elliot Raff. Elliot, how are you doing tonight, man? Doing, doing great, Cody. Thanks so much for having me. And I got big shoes to fill here, but uh, hopefully folks won't miss Nathan too much.
0: It's great to have you on. We uh, appreciate you filling in on short notice and we have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. So I'm excited to pick your brain. So in today's episode, we are going to be recapping two very busy weekends of Pioneer Regional Championships. We had seven different tournaments happening over the past two weekends. And we're going to be looking back at some of the hot takes Nathan and I had in the last episode to see what actually happened as well as some of the developments from those Regional Championships and The decks we saw win, the decks we saw perform well, and the decks we saw perform poorly. And then we're going to spend most of today's show talking about a deck that brought major success to both Elliot and I, which is Karuga Fires in Pioneer. Elliot had a fantastic showing with the deck in Dallas at the U.S. Regional Championship, and I piloted it to a win at an RCQ locally to qualify for the Atlanta Regional Championship this winter. So We're both going to talk about uh, our different builds on the deck, kind of do a deep dive into what makes it tick. Some of the decisions we made in deck building and whether or not you should consider playing it for your next event. So, before we dive into that, we just want to say thank you to our reviewers and patrons. We appreciate all of your feedback and support and really appreciate everything you've given us so far. Shout outs to several anonymous users for their new five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We love seeing those coming in. And a big welcome to our many new followers uh, on all the different podcast platforms. Plus, a huge thank you to Clint Endicott for becoming a new patron since the last episode. We really appreciate the support. And if you listener would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or by signing up for our Patreon. As we've been talking about the last few episodes, we've recently revamped the tiers in the Patreon. So we have a lot of awesome new benefits, including early access and the ability to ask questions for new episodes and when we have guests on. So. You can help keep the lights on here at the show for as little as a dollar a month. And we really appreciate any support. If you'd like to check out the Patreon, the link for that is in the show notes. So Elliot, let's start just by talking about the different regional championships that have happened in the past two weeks. Obviously, you were at Dallas. What are your just general thoughts on on how the event was? And was this the first time that you've been to one of the regional championships?
1: Yeah, it actually was. Uh, so for, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm also... Uh... A judge, so I I, did, I get around to a lot of these large events, but I hadn't made it out to any of the regional championships yet. Uh, so this was the first one that I attended. Obviously, I had a really fun time, but it's pretty easy to have a fun time when you have know, the kind of <laughs> yeah. that I had. But but yeah, uh, it it was great to get out, uh, play some competitive magic, and really see what's going on in Pioneer nowadays.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I guess uh, for those who don't know you, do you just want to sort of introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about you and your background?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So as as I mentioned before, uh, I'm a level three judge, actually. I've been playing Magic for a pretty long time and judging for the better part of the last 11 years. Uh, So if you have been to any large events uh, here in the U.S. or in Canada, uh, such as Grand Prix, you know, Star City Games Opens, that kind of thing. There's a good chance that I was there also, just uh, just on the other side of the table, as it were. <laughs> so, yeah, that's mainly my Magic experience uh, for the past, you know, ten-ish years. Uh, this will be my first Pro Tour that that I've qualified for, and that I'll be attending. But I really do enjoy getting out and and playing pretty much whatever's out there as well uh so pioneer modern whatever uh so yeah this was just a a really fantastic weekend and uh it's still all kind of hitting me to be honest so
0: yeah i'm sure that's a lot to take in congratulations again on, on qualifying that's super awesome i heard uh a rumor that you were thinking about going as a judge to pt barcelona before you ended up qualifying is that true
1: yeah, yeah, that is. I I had applied to work the Pro Tour uh, as a judge, uh, despite the fact that I've been judging for you know the past eleven years and uh, and am a level three judge. I've never actually worked a Pro Tour before, so it's it's a uh, pretty funny to me and uh, a lot of my friends that I'm actually going to be playing on the Pro Tour before I've worked one. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's awesome, man. That's the irony at its finest. So to start us off, we have. Links to all of the different regional championship melee pages, uh, and we're going to post those on the show notes in case you would like to s- check those out. And I want to give a, a shout out to Dreamhack Magic Discord user Mlex for putting that together. Uh, it's a really awesome table that sort of compiles the links for all those events, so you can actually see the deck list and see who won. Uh, and then, as always, thanks to Robert Taylor, aka @fireshoes on Twitter, for his work in sharing deck lists from all the RCs throughout the past two weekends really great to sort of just see those at a glance and, and not have to dig too hard for them. So thanks to those users for putting that all together. But Elliot, let's talk about the RC. So last week, Nathan and I had some hot takes before the RCs kicked off. And one of mine was that Rakdos mid range would not win an RC. And so far across seven events, it has not. Part of that we can attribute maybe to the deck we're going to talk about later in fires. <laughs> um, but I think that it's also worth discussing, you know, why is this deck having such a hard time putting up That big result, despite being the most popular in the room at every event so far, we've seen it, its meta share be consistently above 15% Uh, at Dallas, it was over it was 21%, just a little over 21%. But despite that, you know, its it's win rate is, you know, between 48 and 52% kind of on average, and it's struggling to win an RC. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be or, or any observations? I'm sure you did a lot of testing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, on range?
1: yeah absolutely. So, I mean, undeniably reckless mid range was the deck that everyone was aware of coming into the last round of RC. Right. Uh, and that that's represented in its metagame share. You know, like you said, it was 21% of the room at Dallas, which was just shy of 1200 players. Uh, so really, I think that if you were to show up for the the, the RCs, you either had to have a really good plan for the Rakdos range matchup, or you were on the second level where you were bringing a deck that fared well against the decks that were coming to be Rakdos midrange. Uh, and we saw that uh, really take shape with the fact that, you know, decks like Azorius Spirits had such a high win rate coming out of yeah, the weekend. Absolutely. Which is a deck that traditionally does not have a very good Rakdos matchup, but was there to... Uh, beat up on the decks like mono green that were coming in very prepared to beat Rakdos. Uh It doesn't really surprise me that Raktos didn't really have a very good weekend because of that, uh, yeah. you know, when, when you are public enemy number one, and honestly, it's kind of like the jund of the format where it's got, you know, 50 to 60% against a lot of things, something like that. Sure. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that Raktos didn't have a very good weekend overall.
0: Yeah, same here and you know we have um a handful of of regional championships. I think there's five left. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if it can if it can turn that around and and some pilots can figure out how to to bridge that gap. But right now it just doesn't look like uh the deck is is on the upswing. You mentioned Spirits, another deck that we saw do very well over the last two weekends is uh Rakdos Sacrifice. So, you know, right now that build of Rakdos is looking like the better Rakdos deck in More and more every weekend, we see that it is outperforming sort of the mid-range version. So that's also interesting to keep an eye on since it has a good matchup against mid-range. And, you know, as the last two weeks. So, I mean, it's performed well against uh, the field as a whole too. So interesting to keep an eye on that. Another thing we talked about in the last episode was Karuga Fire specifically. And the deck potentially being in a really good spot for these RCs after its great showing at LMS Valencia a week before. And so to that, we'll just say, we told you so. (laughs) The uh, Fires had had a good weekend and it's doing well right now, which we'll talk about more uh, as we get into the episode. Uh, But then lastly, we also talked about um, creativity. Is it creativity and mono green and where they would end up in terms of Metashare? Um, You know, we talked about if they would be pretty close or if mono green would stay on top. Uh, And it turned out that green continued to be more popular and also performed much better than is it creativity at the rcs the past two weekends how did your experience play out in dallas um with these two decks and kind of just what you were seeing around you
1: yeah so i mean i saw a lot of mono green uh all weekend at, at dallas uh, i mean i i played against it five times on the weekend which is kind of nuts um <laughs> Uh, d- did well up until the last time, uh, but <laughs> but Is it Creativity did not seem to have a very good weekend at all. Uh, a few of my uh, my testing partners for the event ended up on Is it Creativity, mm-hmm. uh, but it seemed like a lot of folks either came prepared for it uh, or otherwise played strategies that were were basically naturally attuned to have a good matchup against it. You know, it's, it's things like uh, Spirits, for instance. If uh if people had put down the uh the magma opus versions of gear of uh of creativity, for instance, and we're leaning more towards World's to Fine Worm and Atraxa, then Spirits is is uh I think more favored in that kind of matchup. Sure. You know, just playing less interaction overall. Um but it, it seemed like uh creativity was definitely having a rough go of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, and I think that's what we saw sort of throughout the weekend, you know, maybe barring a few outliers here and there. But one interesting thing to note and what makes kind of analyzing this deck hard, and 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 Nathan and I have talked about this the past few episodes as well, is with all the different versions of creativity running around we see deck lists being posted and win rates and everything like that they sort of all three get grouped together despite playing like three very different decks so it makes this deck kind of hard to analyze and and figure out you know where it's actually at and like you said the different versions have different matchup percentages and are stronger in a different thing so That's something interesting to keep an eye on, but without a doubt, um, we saw Mono Green top creativity for these RCs in terms of both popularity and win rate. So that'll be another interesting thing to keep an eye on going forward. We did see Mono Green putting quite a few decks in the top eight, and it did win the Southeast Asia Regional Championship. So there were, I know, some concerns going in of, you know, whether... It was strong enough to compete against the wide field and beat some of these other popular decks, but I think it's put those to rest so far, and it'll be interesting to see how that deck continues to play in the next few weeks. But I think that is all we have to talk about right now for the past few RCs, so let's dive in now to talking about your favorite deck and mine, Karuga Fires. So, I guess if we just want to do a brief intro to the archetype, I think that would be a good starting point for those maybe who aren't familiar.
1: Yeah, sure. So... The Enigmatic Fires deck has kind of been around uh, a while, right? So uh, when we say Enigmatic Fires, it's generally named after the, the two, the, the two uh, four-mana enchantments that meet Enigmatic Incarnation and Fires of Invention, um, both of which kind of have a similar game plan in that they are very powerful effects that allow you to compound advantage uh, over a short or really long amount of time. Right. Uh so the the Karuga version is relatively recent. I think uh, it was uh, NJAMTG, Noah, uh, who really put this archetype on the map by winning a Pioneer Challenge about, I want to say uh, about two months ago now. Yeah, that sounds uh, about right. Yeah, and, and that's how I found out about the deck and Same. <laughs> or the, the most recent incarnation of the deck, picked it up and started playing with it. Uh, prior, you did see uh, folks like Derek Davis, uh, uh, Top 8. I believe it was uh, Pro Tour in Philadelphia earlier this year uh, with the Yorion Enigmatic Fires version. Mm-hmm. Uh, those versions tend to play a lot of air and are more of a, a toolbox kind of deck where they're playing stuff like Nylea's Presence Chain to the Rocks, uh, cheap interaction to, uh, to stay ahead that way, where the Karuga deck obviously has to askew that. Uh, you know, Karuga has this drawback where you have to play cards that cost three or more. So you'll see the interaction in the early game be more like a bone crusher Giant, uh, which you can cast Stomp and still be fine with Karuga and touch the Spirit Realm uh, as the main early interaction. But yeah, the, the main draw to the Karuga build is that your draws are just a lot more consistent, right? You're, you're not playing 80 cards. You get to find your, your powerful enchantments more often. Uh, and then kind of go over the top and catch up uh, to some of these faster decks that you can see in pioneer with a lot more consistency.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love the Karuga version so much. Um, I played the Yorion version probably about a year ago now. I was playing that for a while. And the, the lack of consistency is definitely something that I noticed and something I disliked about the deck. So when I saw this list pop up as the 60 card version and played a few rounds with it, and I was like, wow, this is a lot more consistent being able to hit those those key enchantments on turn four and and sort of snowball from that point so super interesting so again for those who are, are not super familiar this deck is powered by uh, the two four enchantments that we talked about uh, but then you also get to play a suite of very powerful creatures that you can often cheat out ahead of curve or you can just play them uh, normally so We're going to talk about um, how we chose our different creatures in the decks. And the first one I want to talk about is something I noticed interesting about both your list and mine, Elliot, is that we both chose to include Shieldred. And at the time that we registered these lists, most of the decks were running Clever Impersonator, sort of in that four-drop slot alongside New Heliod. So what sort of led you to Shieldred? I'm curious if we have the same thought process on that.
1: Yeah, so really, uh, Shieldred. Was kind of born out of just noticing a general pattern of how the games that I was losing were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, a, a lot of the times when you are uh, losing games with fires, it's because a deck has gone under you to some degree, right? So whether or not that's uh, the Boros Convoke deck that we that we saw pop up in the last few weeks, something like something like a uh, Mono Green having like their their compounded advantage draws. And really just spots where Clever Impersonator didn't do enough to catch you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it didn't do enough to stabilize the board. It didn't really keep you alive. Uh, so that's kind of where I started testing Shieldred. It tended to shore up a lot of the dodgier matchups as well. Stuff like uh, Creativity, for instance, yeah. uh, as well as uh, even Blue White Control, uh, which is is one of the decks rougher matchups for sure. The other thing that's really great with uh, Sheldrin is, say, uh, you have it with in your hand and uh, can cast it off of Fires of Invention on turn four. And then on turn five, you can buy Karuga from the Companion Zone, cast it, immediately gain, you know, six to eight life. And yeah. you're, you're right back in the game. You're that's good. good. To, to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to take over the, from that. the spot. first time that
0: <laughs> i did that i was like Bob. Well, yep this belongs in the deck for sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely you can actually go back i think it was my round six match that was on camera where i was playing against convoke um and that that was basically the game plan the entire way once i had the shield in my hand the they'll, they'll uh the commentators will tell you that i missed my triggers because the spotter didn't update it but believe me i didn't <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is the
0: inside insight here <laughs> Yeah, so I mean I agree with everything you just said. Um and, and in my testing with the deck shoulder just immediately as soon as I slotted it in I was like, yeah, this feels good. Um you mentioned just catching up, but I think there's a lot of spots too where you find that clever impersonator and you know, if you tutor it off of the enigmatic incarnation, sometimes there's, you know, a much better target that you you know, hey, I want this and I want to go copy something important, but there's also a lot of times where there's just not something super impactful on the battlefield and um bringing out the clever impersonator was just not great and then obviously there's some situations where shoulder is not great uh if you're too far behind or or if it's just sort of too late but um in my opinion there's just so many more situations where it is impactful and and it's just such a strong creature to go get
1: yeah exactly yeah so i mean I think uh, a lot of the times, clever impersonator in my testing was copying, say like my only line binding, or maybe even something from the opponent. But if you are ever copying something from the opponent, it's a lot. Or sorry, it's it's not very likely that whatever you're copying is going to be better than a shield. <laughs> like the cards are <laughs> one of the best cards in the format, uh, and especially against something like Rakdos mid range. You know, the the if you copy their shield, rid. A lot of the times they just have the removal spell for it and you're so advantaged against them anyway that having that additional flexibility against other decks is just worth it.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So next, let's dive into the five drop slot. So I noticed that your list, um, again, deviated from sort of the stock builds that we've been seeing a lot of in that it does not play a Cavalier of Dawn. So what were your thought process behind uh, not playing Cav
1: yeah, that was actually the very last change I made to my deck. Uh, kind of a couple of days before the RC. So Cavalier of Dawn is an interesting card in the deck. Uh, it's it definitely does a lot to stabilize you. You know the the Beast Within mode when it enters is is really good a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to regrow an enchantment when it dies, obviously good. Like the the card deserves its spot in the deck when when you want it. Sure. Uh, really. What led me not to play it was really just a metagame call. It was that I, I expected a slight uptick in in uh, the Convoke deck. I expected green to show up a lot. And so it really came down to whether or not I was going to play the second temporary lockdown in the man or the Cavalier. And I thought that my matchups against the perceived metagame were going to be good enough to the point where Cavalier wasn't going to be strictly necessary. And also, I was playing, uh, and I know we'll get to this in a moment, but I'm playing Dragonlord and Tarka as one of my seven drops, mm-hmm. which does a very similar thing to Cavalier of Dawn in that it comes down and immediately stabilizes the board. Sure. Uh, so that that was kind of my thought process heading in is that I didn't want to fall too far behind to the aggressive decks and the mono greens of the world, especially against mono green. Drawing that first temporary lockdown is is really important so, a but, lot of the time, so and I expected to see a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah. So that's just kind of what led me to that decision. Obviously, if you take a look at my list and I'm surprised no one has brought this up yet, but my Fable of the Mirror Breakers are actually pretty bad compared to a lot of other lists <laughs> uh, in that the only non-legendary creature in my build is Bonecrusher Giant. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I didn't find that a lot of the time you actually need reflection to start copying things in order to actually close the game out. Absolutely. So I, I didn't think I'd actually miss the Cavalier a lot.
0: Yeah. It's super interesting. That's, I know a card that's kind of been up for debate off and on, and I like um, where you're coming from. It's just a metagame call. Do you think that you would keep uh, Cavalier out in sort of a more general metagame, or I guess not RC? Say you're just kind of grinding this at a local RCQ, or I guess sort of not knowing if the meta is going to look exactly like that? top 10 deck spread that we see at the rcs but you might expect some more randomness from local events you think you would keep it the way you have it
1: uh i think it's a tough call i think the increased flexibility you get from cavalier is definitely worth a lot Mm -hmm. but it it really just depends on your local meta like if you are heading into an unknown field i like the cavalier a lot and to that same end i'm not sure that you know dragon lord or tarko would be in your deck against a more open field right uh, but if you know that you know, your metagame has a lot of modigreen, green has a lot of aggressive creature based decks even a lot of spirits uh the the temporary lockdowns are really one of your only ways to to gain parity mm-hmm. so it it's really just kind of going to end up being a gut feeling a lot of the time but that's yeah. part of the the power and flexibility of the deck right
0: absolutely being able to to sort of pick and choose what you need for any given weekend is is something that attracted me to the deck and i'm sure a lot of other people feel the same way so uh good thoughts next up is the seven slot so um here we have a few more interesting inclusions so one that you and i both included um that i know you already commented on as being just an all-star all weekend in dallas was coma so let's talk about coma how did you end up on that what was your sort of Uh aha moment to include Koma?
1: So I I played with Koma in some previous versions of of, uh, Fires in the Mm -hmm. past, uh, and it was generally impressive. I I liked it into certain matchups, really, but when I was starting to test out uh, Noah's initial deck list uh, in that seven slot, he had Agent of Treachery and Titan of Industry, which are kind of more stock cards. Mm-hmm. And really what I found is that I just never wanted to get agent of treachery. Like in, in <laughs> short, short, of, short of actually having a flipped table of the mirror breaker, uh, agent feels really good, right? It does a very big, powerful thing. It feels really great to just steal your opponent's thing. And then you have a two, three. Uh, yeah, it's, it just doesn't really close the game out quickly enough. Uh, so I, I swapped over to this combination of uh, Atarka and Koma, and Koma was just consistently the best deck. There's are the best card in my deck all weekend. There is not a better seven drop target against Monogreen. I'm absolutely mm-hmm. convinced of that. Uh, being able to shut off their Nykthos in their upkeep, being able to stop their Chain mid-combo. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. Like I, I even put it into play against um, Erecto Sacrifice player, Later on uh, in the tournament, like made the coil, they immediately went and furnace ranged it with a witch's oven on the table. And I just walked their witch's oven before the furnace <laughs> ranged. I'm like, sure, I'll take six, no problem. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah K- Koma is just, it, it's, it's an incredible magic card. It just is. Uh, and it does everything this deck wants to do. And I would not play the deck with
0: Yep, I, I'm 100% with you. Anyone that's talked to me knows that I'm also a big agent of treachery hater. <laughs> like you said, it just there's so many spots where it's flashing and it does something, and then you're left with not much to show for it. Whereas, you know, something like coma, it comes down and, and you just continue to build value every turn. And another thing you mentioned too is that, you know, in this deck with especially without Cav, but but even with it, having a flipped fable isn't super impactful so you know i think there's quite a few spots where you get that first or second trigger off the fable and then you go ahead and sacrifice it to the enigmatic to just go get a four drop and you know whether it's heliod and you bring it back because you have nothing else or or you just go get a shoulder like not having to keep that backside around for no reason to hopefully copy an agent is is upside in my opinion. So yeah, Coma's great. Definitely play it in the deck. And then we've mentioned it a few times already, but Dragonlord Atarka, you said that this was maybe the one card you'd change out moving forward. Why Why
1: is that? So uh, again, this was kind of just a metagame call and how I prefer to play the deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atarka is really good at, again, coming down and immediately stabilizing the board. Right, so that, again, was another concession to kind of the uh, the Convoke decks, you know, being able to just instantly clear up a lot of their their creatures, and then more importantly, honestly, was being able to just close the game out quickly, because especially against these decks where uh, they've got a large board presence, or uh, or you might be in, you know, in stomp range and burn range and or range, uh, Atarka just hits for a ton <laughs> immediately. Yeah. Uh, where I would switch it out, again, that that's kind of the same, uh, same logic as before, where it's not so great into the open field. Uh, and something like Titan of Industry might be a better call uh, when you don't know exactly what you're going to be playing against. Sure. Titan also does a good job at stabilizing you. It just doesn't always deal with you know, the wide battlefield so well. Yeah,
0: exactly. In my list, I played Titan in that slot, again, just kind of going into the, the unknown field. And I liked the flexibility of, you know, being able to gain life, make extra bodies, protect something, uh, blow up enchantments was all good. So Titan is another, I think, viable card for that slot. Um, but yeah, Dragonlord Atarka was interesting when I first was sort of watching your run at Dallas. And and I think you were like 6 and oh 07 at the time. I, I pulled it up and saw that. I was like, oh, that's that's spicy. I like that. So. Interesting inclusion for sure. Uh and then the last sort of seven drop worth mentioning that it, that sees play is a Grand Unifier. So I think in interestingly that in this deck Atraxa is a lot worse than it is in a lot of other decks, just in that you don't have as many targets to go get, you know, at best you're gonna go get a land creature and an enchantment. Um if you happen to be running any other spells in the main deck. That's probably incorrect, but um, <laughs> you're just not going to get quite as much value off the Attracts as you will on other decks. But I do think that it's still a worthy inclusion and sort of just a generically good 7-drop to go get. You know, you immediately put the pressure on, put a clock on, and then you can also find a couple extra cards to, to keep the momentum going on your next turn. But um, any thoughts on Atraxa from the weekend?
1: Yeah, Atraxa is just a generically... You know, good, powerful card uh, yeah. gets you out of a lot of spots that, you know, some other cards wouldn't. Uh, and honestly, I think I might have hard cast a track some more than the other sevens over the course of the yeah. just just how it came up or, you know, free cast off fires or what have you. Sure. Um, it's pretty
0: easy to cast, honestly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the power level is just there. And sometimes you just have a spot for a generically great card, uh, especially it. it Ends up doing some work in the post board games, where you bring in mystical disputes in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being able to grab that extra type. I know I took a look at your list, and you've got that one baleful mastery hanging out. You know, maybe you pick that up. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there, there's not a lot to say about tracks that hasn't already been said. I actually qualified for the RC playing the Neoformat tracks deck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so just uh, it, Just an old buddy
0: of mine, I guess. You got got a taste for the ceiling of it, and uh, now you get the floor. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, so another uh, super impactful spell in this deck is Touch the Spirit Realm. And this card is just so good. In my list, I made the mistake of cutting the third copy. Um, I would never do it again in the RCQ that I won. Um, I was in a win and in uh, to get into the top eight against... Attracts a creativity that post board brought in Hallbreaker horrors, and my opponent uh, in game three went to swing in with uh, two Hallbreakers and something else I forget a token or something, and I had a fires on the field and he was ready to run into the top eight and just declared attacks said good games and I was like hang on hang on and channel the touch the spirit realm to uh, flicker one of the the Hallbreakers and then go to my turn drop an Elishnorn off the fires, drop a Leyland Binding, and take all of his stuff and then was able to just grind it out from there. So card is super good. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Maybe speaking specifically towards sort of just the versatility of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, it's just an, an incredible card. It is at its best uh, against creativity because uh, of that channel ability both being uncounterable and also able to hit artifacts. Which is a a big deal when someone's trying to creativity away those treasures and they think they're they're invincible and they've they've got you. Yeah, uh, you <laughs> can't but, that part. But yeah, touch the spirit realm is just absolutely nuts. Uh, I mean, you, you cast it a lot of times against mono green just to get rid of their huge threats, just as an oblivion yeah. ring. Like you said, it, it gets doubled uh, when you elishorn as well. Uh, a very common play pattern, especially when you have uh, fires of invention. Is to either stabilize or even you know declare blockers with it, and then use it to blink out something of yours. With an enters the battlefield, effects mm-hmm. uh, you can see that. I think this was in my my eight oh match that was on camera where I just blinked. It, it, or sorry, it, it was on feature uh, or uh, featured in both of those matches. I think where uh, I actually channeled it to remove a blocker, cast a heal yard, yeah, got it back, channeled to remove the other one, and just yeah, lethal, yeah. uh, and then. Blinked out a Karuga in one of them and just drew, you know, a bunch of extra cards. Like, it it just does everything you want the the deck to do. And even, you know, a lot of times you just want to be able to just kill a Goblin Shaman token when they make it. Or a Shark token or whatever. With the
0: upside of them being able to sack it to Enigmatic with no downside.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it just... Does everything you want the the card to do. You very rarely board it out. It's even one of your better tools against blue light controlled simply because you use it to save your own creatures from board. Sure. like it's yeah, just an all star does everything. P-
0: play them all. Don't don't cut them like me. That was dumb. Uh, <laughs> so next up, I want to talk to you about the mana base because we've seen so many different versions of this mana base. Obviously, with no fetches in Pioneer, things get clunky when you're trying to play four or five colors. Although our main deck lists were very, very similar, um, we played two very different mana bases. So I ended up choosing to play a version that was sort of pioneered, no pun intended, uh, by PG8 from the Enigmatic Discord channel. And the idea that they had in building this mana base using um, Rafine's Tower and uh, Jetmir's Garden, which is the Esper and Naya Triomes, uh, is to sort of keep all of the number of color sources that you have. From sort of the stock land builds the same. So you have the colors to cast everything. Keeping your um, typed lands compatible with the the non-typed, you know, Sulfur Falls, Sun, Petal Grove. So that those are always coming in untapped. <laughs> in
1: the land.
0: Um, but The point of this version would just be to separate the green and blue sources. So that you can more reliably hard cast Enigmatic on turn four. So... With your uh, mana base, did you ever notice having trouble casting Enigmatic on turn four? Was this something you tested any different versions of? Or, or why did you sort of land on, on your mana base?
1: Uh, so I'm I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> the, the mana base was definitely the, the weakest part of the deck. I actually saw a mana base very similar to the one that you used, uh, I think, just a day before I was supposed to leave for the event. Yeah, and I right actually before. did... Yeah, I actually did like the idea of it a lot more than the one I currently had, but didn't have mm-hmm. access to the cards and wasn't really going to test out a mana base that I hadn't tested with. Absolutely. Um, but going forward, uh, I I think I would absolutely use a mana base more similar to to what you had, uh, so that that Jet Mears Garden rafine's Tower mana base. Uh, and also, apologies if you. Heard that noise that there, my my cat's being particularly jumpy at the moment. <laughs> um Even uh, like cats but,
0: excited about Karuga.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I moving forward, I would definitely test out that that split mana base. You can actually see, I believe it's my match against Convoke uh in round six, where I actually don't have the split mana for Enigmatic for many, many turns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had multiple copies in, in my hand. So that, that also came back to bite me a couple of times specifically in matchups where you poured out fires of invention. So that's something like spirits where it was a little more difficult to cast my spells reliably. Uh, so the mana base could definitely use work.
0: Yeah. And I'll just say of um, this version that Eight that developed, it felt amazing. The first league that I played after switching over to this one, just the deck played the same way, but it just felt a lot smoother and sort of making your decisions on land drops came a lot easier. and You were just able to <clears throat> cast your stuff more reliably. And I think in a deck like this, where you want to go off on turn four and stabilize and take over from there, it's so punishing to get to turn four and not being able to play you know, one of your key spells in that spot when... Otherwise, if you were able to play it, you'd be in a much better position. So definitely worth considering, again, with these four or five color mana bases and Pioneer, things get clunky, things are confusing. So, you know, this may not be the final best version, but I do think that it's worth trying out and worth trying out the different versions that continue to pop up to see which is the most viable for this deck. Because, you know, I think the biggest downside of playing a deck like this is your mana base and how that kind of limits you. So. Worth considering and and continuing to brew on moving forward, Uh, which bridges us perfectly into the next topic, which is where does this deck go next? And I think one thing that's interesting that we kind of already touched on is that Rakdos midrange is suffering right now. And despite the fact that it's been so popular at these RCs, you know, are we seeing that just because this is players who qualified and just picked up the deck at the top of the meta? Is it players that are familiar with standard and, you know, kind of ported most of their standard Rakdos deck over? The question, I guess, is because of because our Rakdos mid-range matchup is so good, what happens if Rakdos goes on a downswing? Because that obviously hurts the deck. But, but what happens, and I guess what happens with this deck as the meta sort of, sort of adjusts to the results of these regional championships?
1: Yeah, I mean so fires had a very good past couple of weeks because it was very well suited to beat the current metagame. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that you're
0: going in against 20% of the room with a great matchup is, is hard to pass up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if the meta continues to skew more tempo based more along the spirits axis, then the deck's just going to get a lot worse. That, that's just yeah. what's going to happen. Uh, especially with the cropping up of this, uh, Blue-White Lotus field deck as well, uh, you know, the the going way over the top uh, while continuing to play these effects that Enigmatic's bad against, like Farewell, it, it could end up getting pretty hostile for a while. Yeah. So it, it really just depends on whether or not you'd be able to find uh, builds that would be able to hang with things like Spirits and Blue-White. Uh, but obviously Pioneer is... Uh, is a very powerful format. You know, people are doing different things that are designed to attack different decks. Fires was really good against Rakdos. It's really good against Mono Green. Uh, it's it's even good against the Rakdos sacrifice decks that are gaining in popularity. So, if Rakdos sacrifice continues to be good, then perhaps Fires is still a great choice.
0: Sure. Yeah, um, that
1: makes sense. Yeah, you know, if it if it ends up being that the metagame's more Mono Green, Rakdos, sacrifice, and spirits. You still have a good matchup against two of those three decks, right? So it it still could be a pretty good choice overall. Uh, but in general, I think in order to bring this kind of deck to an event, you need to keep an eye on what's going on in the metagame and really tailor your approach to beat certain strategies.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, above and beyond other decks, this one is one that definitely rewards or punishes you based on what else is in the room and you know we've seen this in some of the the matchup matrices matrixes that have come out over the past few weeks where you know fires has a great you know 80% win rate against a certain deck and then you look at another one and it's it's 10% or 0% so sort of reading the meta is definitely important for this but one thing that I enjoy about this style of deck is you know, that there's so much room to sort of adapt and improve. And if you just look at the impact of cards like New Heliod, Touch the Spirit Realm, you know, we, we've only had those um, recently and they've leveled up this deck quite a bit. So there's always that potential with new set releases that we're going to get a card that just slots perfectly into the archetype, helps it with a bad matchup or helps shore up um, those, those 50, 50 matchups. And I think that's something that makes fires worth keeping an eye on moving forward, even if the meta becomes more hostile and it's maybe not your first choice.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, especially if the metagame continues to be more spirits heavy, I think it's worth exploring sideboard plans where you would actually basically quote unquote board out the Karuga, um, you know, just play perhaps things like rending volley or, or cheaper answers, uh, in matchups where Karuga is not necessarily part of your game plan, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's a lot of agency that you can make in the sideboard of these kinds of decks, even with Karuga as your companion. You know, you were playing three Archon of Emeria in, in your sideboard, presumably you know, hedging against Lotus Field as well as Mono Green there. Yeah. And and for the RC, I chose to just ignore the fact that Lotus Field existed.
0: (laughs) I think that might be a better approach moving forward, honestly. The matchup is atrocious either way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Uh, But yeah, it. Obviously, like, you've got a lot of agency in your decisions, just as you do in the toolbox of the main deck. You can adjust the sideboard as well, uh, and basically just keep an eye on exactly what you expect and what you really want to beat. the The really good thing about having polarized matchups is that you don't need cards in your sideboard to make your you know fifty, sixty, seventy percent matchups better. You can right. just you know have more bullets, have more hammers against certain strategies that might allow you to swing you know, the 40% matchups into a 50% matchup.
0: Definitely. And I think that the approach that you just mentioned too, as far as just not having Karuga as your companion in sideboard games could definitely be something worth exploring moving forward. I have seen some people mention rending volley, like you just talked about, and just being able to have that flexibility of going outside the three CMC plus bubble, to shore up some of those bad matchups could definitely be worth exploring. And I think that's something that's underexplored with this deck right now, for sure, because all of the versions that you see kind of running around right now are keeping Karuga in, which obviously it's a great card does a lot in the deck, but it's not essential, especially in these bad matchups, if you can bring in something more impactful. So definitely worth exploring moving forward. I did want to also mention in your sideboard for the RCU played um, two copies of thought distortion. So was that? Did you ever have a chance to to sort of bring that in and, and have it see an impact? Or
1: so uh, I, I didn't. Uh, if, if you look at my matchup spread, uh, you know, it really there was just basically the one deck where it could have been brought in, which was yeah. the Guy ascendancy combo. Uh, I opted not to. I had too many other things for that matchup. Uh, but the general thought process behind that is that uh, the the blue white control deck um, is one of your worst matchups or one of the worst matchups for sure. Uh, but they actually give you time in that matchup in order to actually get ahead and kill you. Right. Uh, so Thought Distortion was specifically for that matchup, which I, I did have some information from my team that I knew that some other, uh, you know, higher profile players would be bringing blue white that weekend. Mm-hmm. So it was more just geared towards the kind of the winner's me- metagame, the expected one. If blue white were to have, say, a slightly different weekend than the 38% that it had in Valencia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you know, it was mainly just, I, I didn't think Lotus Field was winnable. I didn't think that I needed Archon to beat Mono Green, So it was more as like, okay, this is a bad matchup that I actually can do something about. Yep, so that, that was why the, the thought distortions came in.
0: Yeah, and I think that's definitely something to kind of keep in mind. With You just mentioned it already, but the blue-white Lotus Field deck and and other variants of of blue-white running around. There's been a lot of talk about it, which I don't like to hear as someone that doesn't like playing against (laughs) blue-white. But it does seem like it's uh, at least picking up in talk, if not popularity. So something to keep an eye on moving forward. But that's all that we had mentioned discussing for this deep dive into Karuga Fires. Anything else you want to add before we move on to our next topic?
1: Yeah, something really kind of random that I thought of while we were discussing it about a uh, touch the spirit realm as well. Uh, so I actually had a matchup. This this didn't come up, but it but it very well uh, was close to. Uh, I played against Azoria Spirits uh, in around twelve, and at one point they actually had a. Uh, a bone crusher giant of mine underneath a spell queller because we were both stumbling a little bit and that was really the best play that both of us had available. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something that's uh, worth noting uh, for those who don't know is that you can actually, uh, if your bone crusher giant were to come off of a spell queller, you can actually cast stomp for free and not the bone crusher again. Uh, mm-hmm. So that definitely is something to keep an eye on. Say uh, I had it lined up where if it became relevant, I could channel touch the spirit realm at the spell queller, cast stomp, kill something else. And then proceed from there. That's another cool little trick you can do.
0: And these are the judge lines we have you on for. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our next segment is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad that you're going to want for your next tournament. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface while the jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. Learn more at myboogieboard.com/slash games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games. Never start a match without your boogie board. All right, Elliot. So now that you are qualified for the PT, I am qualified for Atlanta. We have our sights set down the road. Uh, what are your thoughts about playing modern in Barcelona?
1: Yeah, modern, modern is in a crazy spot at the moment. <laughs> like, uh, for sure. I, I, I've i played a lot of modern over over the years. I think it's probably my favorite format to play, but uh I haven't been playing it much, obviously, because I've been preparing for the RC. Sure. Uh, so I know it's a shocker. I, I love the of toolbox creature combo decks. So in general, over the past year, I've been playing a lot of Yawgmoth. Um, so I, I think Yawgmoth's in a fine spot. But again, Creativity, Hammer, uh, Rhinos, the, these are all decks that uh, that we expect to show up. There's nothing about modern. It's just, it's so diverse, right? It's just so incredibly diverse. So I I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to prepare for, Uh, you know, I'm I'm working with some great folks. Uh, I'm probably going to, going to start seeing how viable Moth is because I think that I, I, I'm not entirely certain how many folks will be qualified for this pro tour that actually just play a lot of modern and are, are, you know, Deck experts, which can really help you out in in a wide open field, but obviously the level of competition is going to be really steep. I, I'm just really looking forward to it. It's uh, it's not a place that I ever thought I'd be, uh, <laughs> at least not for a long time. So I'm I'm just really looking forward to being able to go to Barcelona and you know play a play a great format and have some fun.
0: Yeah, it's definitely going to be awesome to watch. And I think something worth noting that you kind of hinted at there is you know everyone that's qualified for. This PT, um, this is the first one that's happening in modern and the qualifiers for it leading up to this have not been modern. So that is definitely something worth keeping in mind. And um, we know there obviously will be a lot of strong modern players there. Uh, I believe Aspiring Spike also uh, qualified in Dallas. So we're going to have lots of strong modern players, but definitely will be worth keeping an eye on and, and seeing what people bring to the table. Are the details of your testing team a secret? Do you, are you able to share who you're testing with?
1: I, I think I can probably do that. Uh, so I, I'm testing with uh, Team Misfits for this tournament. Uh, no, notable members uh, from the past couple pro tours include Derek Davis and Benton Manson. They were, they were kind enough to invite me to join their team. It like a really great group of people to test with. They really know their stuff, and I'm, I'm honored to be working
0: with them. That's awesome. Well, we will uh, look forward to, to Team Misfits results in Barcelona. That's exciting. Another thing, looking forward, we've seen a lot of evolution in Pioneer over the past few weeks, um, past month. So, you know, we've had the Boros Convoke deck pop up. We've had Blue White Lotus Field. We've had the Archfiend of the Dross, uh, Metamorphic Alteration combo rising up. So the question that we don't know right now is whether or not these archetypes will stick or just place anything that we have in the meta right now. But I think one thing it does show, you know, based on the fact that some of these decks have put up... Um, Decent to great showings in the RCs, at least in limited cases, shows that there is still a lot of room to explore and innovate in the format. And I think that's not something people were really accounting for going into these RCs, or at least the majority of people, um, just because Pioneer had been pretty stale for a long time and and the meta had been kind of set. So, one thing that I just want to point out is that this is. A great part of having high level competitive play that's accessible to people and that people are able to work towards you know anybody can go win an rcq and go play in these regional championships and then you know have a shot at qualifying for the pro tour and i think that it's really great just having an accessible play program back it's obviously not without its flaws things like cost and distance and and only having so many chances to qualify but it's been really great just seeing the evolution and the format and the the brewing and inspiration from all the people playing in it. And I think that's really awesome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, decks that you just said, you know, these, these Convoke decks, Lotus Field, Archfiend combo, like uh, Pioneer is definitely a lot more interesting than I would have given it credit for before starting the test for this event. Uh, and honestly I'm really looking forward to Atlanta uh, it's it's gonna be a fun time to see how it shapes up especially because Atlanta I believe isn't until December uh, Correct. so yeah. so we're gonna have six months of, uh, of folks really testing and, and seeing what's available in pioneer you know the, even two more months of RCqs uh, sure. so even there's gonna be you know not a lot of data in between <laughs> the end of the RCq season and the the beginning of, of testing season for Atlanta and it's going to be really cool to see what people come up with.
0: Definitely will be interesting to see what kind of creeps out of the shadows when we're all worried about modern. All right well Elliot thank you so much again for coming on um, it was great to have you. Um, anything else you'd like to, to shout out or talk about before we wrap up for today?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Just uh, thanks so much for having me, Cody. I really appreciate it. And uh, always a pleasure to meet a fellow fires enjoyer. (laughs) Absolutely. It's good to see him
0: in the wild. Well, yeah, uh, congratulations again on your run, on qualifying. Um, We look forward to to watching you in Barcelona this summer and, and we'll have to meet up when we're in Atlanta. So great to meet you, Elliot. Besides the pro tour, where can people find you?
1: Uh, sure. The, the best place to find me is on Twitter, uh, at Raf underscore Sputin. That's a R-A-F-F underscore S-P-U-T-I-N. You can find me there if you need any judge questions answered, various <laughs> magic things, <laughs> magical gathering things, or uh, I don't know, talk to me about theater or sports or anything like that. Just uh, come, come chat.
0: All right, well, everyone hit him up and uh, appreciate you again for coming on. It was great talking with you today. And that is going to do it for us on this episode of The Bolt Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. And if you want to help support the show, consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can find the link for that in the show notes. And again, thank you to Boogie Board for their sponsorship. So until next time, get out there and sling some spells.